Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Sinead O'Connor, the icon, the rebel, the enigma. We take a look at the singer's legacy and how much the Ireland she railed against has changed. Heartbroken, heartbroken, um, especially with like our son and all obviously died of a broken heart. It's just an amazing woman, like balls of steel. The earth is warming at such a rate that the UN says we are no longer at the point of global warming. The era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable. And later, are we about to see another indictment for former US President Donald Trump? We bring you the very latest. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, the MTV. than 24 hours we have seen tribute after tribute for the late Sinead O'Connor. Politicians, music royalty and everyone between have shared stories of her music and her activism. But decades after she railed against the establishment, ripped up pictures of the Pope and shone a spotlight on injustices in this country, have the issues in Ireland changed or moved on? Well, let's discuss this. I am joined by former government minister and author Shane Ross, Dr. Mary McAuliffe, director of gender studies at UCD, Donald Lynch, journalist at the Sunday Independent, and people before profit, TD Reid Smith. You are all very welcome to the programme. And Donald, I'm going to start uh, with you because you actually knew Sinead O'Connor as a friend. What brought you together and what do you make of the tributes that you're hearing to her today? Um, well, what brought me together with her was I was a huge fan of hers growing up. I was obsessed with Sinead. I think, uh, you know, if you grew up in a certain, you know, gay in Ireland, she, she just represented uh, rebellion. She represented rejection of the patriarchy and all of that. And, and kids like me were tuned into, tuned into her. Later in life, when I became a journalist, um, I had to do a piece and I reached out to her uh, to speak to her about the piece. And we met up and we became friends and I traveled with her and I went to Jamaica with her and she made a record there. And uh, it was a kind of an odyssey, really. So That's what a I, big and, word and, to use about Yeah, and, and the, tri the tributes today, I, I just think some of them are so beautiful. I think she'd be so touched and moved at the outpouring um, of, of grief. I mean, I was watching footage of people in Temple Bar tonight in London, all over the world. Um, and I just feel sad that she's, she's not alive to see it. What really um, struck me today was the international reaction to this, because we think of Sinead O'Connor as our own, uh, as Irish, as one of us. And, and a lot of people here have a very personal, I think, affiliation to her. But she was a global 
icon. And you can see that right. in the newspaper and the media coverage of her death right around the world. Yeah. Why was that? Why was she such a global icon, do you think? Well, she, she was an unusual person, maybe, maybe even unique in Ireland, in that she was a folk hero, kind of in the mould of someone like Christy Moore, but then also this globally famous uh, talent. I think really that her reach across the world is down to the longevity of her music. I saw so many musical icons um, play such moving tribute to her today. People like Annie Lennox, Dolly Parton. She, 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 was, she had that reach because her music stood the test of time. And it, it, it was so much bigger, so much, so much more important than the controversies and the tabloid sideshow and all of the other things that, that sort of uh, crowded out her, her artistic genius at different times. You say we need to be wary of losing her in mythology. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I mean that if you see the way that, that Sinead O'Connor was, was, was talked about in media and in film and, you know, on chat shows even for the last few years, it's, it's very much a focus on um, her, her legend and this, the sort of icon she was and what she represented to different people and different groups. And in the midst of all of that, there was a real person and she was suffering very much quite a lot of the time as well. I mean, when, when just as an example, when, when Time magazine retrospectively selected her as their person of the year for 1992, you know, Sinead was really suffering at that time with her mental health and she was in hospital and, 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 and things were not good. And it's almost as if this sort of roadshow of, of, of the mythology kind of moves on and, and I'm just not sure people knew how to deal with, with, with the, the, the pain she was in and the things that she went through. Uh, going back, I suppose, to, to her work and to her music and to her activism, which was such a part of the music too. I don't think you can kind of separate one from the other. You say that the, the, the patriarchy that you mentioned energized her, it pushed her, it motivated her yeah. to rail against it. Yeah, well, you know, she started her, her, her fourth album was Universal Mother. She had come back to Ireland at that point and trained under Frank Merriman as a bel canto singer. And she opened it with a, a clip of Germaine Greer speaking. And Germaine Greer said that when she was at Oxford, the patriarchy energized her writing because they gave her something to push against. And Sinead was a bit like Germaine. Um, and I think that she came out of a time in Ireland when there was just so much repression that you had to be a warrior to get out of it. And especially you have to be a warrior if you grew up like she did in such a difficult background and being a woman and um, um, having the broken family background in some ways that she had. And she, she, she was a warrior and she pushed back so hard against that and she took a lot of people with her, I think. I think sometimes, um, Doctor, we can forget, can't we? Or perhaps some of us don't really remember because we were too young um, in the 1990s to be perhaps aware of the environment uh, that somebody like Sinead O'Connor emerged in and railed against. Remind us of what it was like here in Ireland in the early 90s. Well, I mean, the, the most famous uh, speech she made was uh, during the X case. That would have been 1991, 92. Uh, you have to remember, this was coming out of the 1980s in Ireland, where we had seen uh, the insertion of the Eighth Amendment into the Constitution, the loss of the first divorce referendum, uh, the Kerry Babies case, and that, that, that misogynistic investigation uh, and blaming a young woman in Kerry for, for uh, you know, killing children that 
that we now know didn't happen in that way at all, uh, the Anne Lovett case, and so much more. Um, and with the election of Mary Robinson in 1990, there was a little bit of a spark, and then the X case happens. And the X case is something feminists had warned about, that the Eighth Amendment was going to create issues and problems for women and girls. It was going, one of their posters was, this amendment will kill women. Um, and it, almost, it did in, in the end, we know that now. But the X case was a, a young girl pregnant because of rape. Parents wanted to take her to England to have a termination and the guard said, you can't go. You can't because our constitution says you cannot uh, go and get a termination. It would have been illegal. It would have been illegal. And it brought, when the news broke, it brought thousands and thousands and thousands of young women of Sinead's age out onto the street. And with them came Sinead O'Connor. And she was incandescent with rage, as were so many of us at that time, of the misogyny we found ourselves in, of the patriarchal state we were living in. It wasn't, it was a reality to young women of that time. Um, and, and it damaged an awful lot of women at that time, not just the experience of maybe growing up in, in a broken home, but also patriarchy was damaging to so many young women. And Sinead gave voice to that. Because she had a platform, but there was lots of other people, perhaps, um, Mary, who had a platform too, who didn't use it or chose not to use it. She wasn't completely alone in Ireland at the time in, in terms of, of breaking the ranks. But she was one of a handful of voices. She was. And I mean, I don't blame anyone for not using mm. their platform. I think it's a choice. Because when you do use your platform for activism like Sinead did, and it wasn't just about feminism and reproductive rights. She talked about the AIDS crisis and the, the woeful government response to the, the deaths of, of gay men during that period. Just, you know, they didn't really care uh, that it was happening. And other issues, anti-racism. Um, because, of course, the pushback can be very damaging, both personally, but also professionally. So and the time choose, was very damaging. It was very damaging to her. And also the child sex abuse. And that, that led to the tearing up of the, the picture of the Pope. Like the institutional church was really trying to, to uh, escape its responsibility. And she knew that because she was talking to those people like Andrew Madden, uh, uh, who had broke the stories about what was happening to them uh, um, when they were young children and about the, you know, the uh, industrial schools and the woeful response of the church to that. And she used her platform to highlight that. But of course, the institutions, they've been around a long time. They're not going to go down easy. And they push back at any challenges. Um, so, you know, it is a choice to make to use your platform. And you have to be brave and you have to be strong and you have to be resilient. And while Sinead did have her mental health issues, I think she was also very resilient because she kept going. Uh, people like Sinead O'Connor, you know, agitators like that, um, Shane Ross, they can be a thorn in the sides of governments, governments who tend to want to be popular and to go along with the status quo as opposed to, you know, ripping up pictures of the Pope. Was she? I think so. I don't think they probably took her seriously enough. I was reading a piece here this, this morning, which said, I think, quite rightly, that um, Irish society actually caught up with her and she was leading it by a very, very long, long way. Um, I was in the Senate when the Eighth Amendment was proposed. I, I voted against it, as happened at the time. I was one of the few people who was, who was there at the time who did vote against it. And she was leading uh, a large number of people in that. She had it. I suppose she had 
one tremendous advantage, but she also had, it showed her great courage in that she was completely her own person. She was beholden to no one. She was powerful because she was popular and because she, because she was such a fantastic um, person in, in so many ways. But she was beholden to absolutely no one. And she realized this and she was utterly carefree. She didn't care who she offended. She was offending one group one week and one group the other week, which is the ideal side type of person to have in that situation. The, the, so she was unique. people are necessary for social progression. They're absolutely they? essential and Ireland did follow. She was so far ahead. What she said, I suppose, initially, and when she tore up the picture of the Pope, which was a, a very courageous thing to do, and she didn't do that as a publicity stunt in any way, because, because there was absolutely no need for her to get publicity, she had plenty of it. What she did then was, was leading the way by, by a distance from politicians in Ireland and others as well, and, and offending people in a, in a tremendously courageous way by doing that to the Pope. Do you think there are people out there, though, um, Bridge, who feel that the progression that we talk about, the social progression here in Ireland, has all been for good? Has all been for hasn't all been for good? Hasn't all been for good? Oh, I've no doubt. I mean, there are people out there who'd like to see us back in the dark ages, who want to get rid of the... Um, to undo the, the, the repeal referendum. And they're very public and open about them. Some of them are political leaders. Um, there's people out there who would like to drive women back into a subordinate position in society. Um, I've no doubt, but they are in a minority. And the Ireland that Sinead grew up in, that I grew up in, has utterly changed. And I see her as a kind of a marker for the period of time that it really started to change in a fundamental way. But one of the interesting things I thought about looking back on what she said uh, at the rally um, for the X case, you know, to let her go, I think that was the slogan of the rally, to let her go, um, was that we need another referendum. And she was bef long before her time, because it was 26 years later when we actually did get a referendum to repeal the eighth. But she did blaze that trail. And she did so because she was very clear about this. I met her, unlike Donald, she was not a friend, but I'd worked with her around the X case movement and, or the movement around the X case. And she was in my home for the afternoon. Eamon McCann dropped her off one afternoon and we sat and had tea and yacked together for hours. And she was very clear that she understood the right for women to choose could not be separate from women's rights generally. They're not two separate issues. They're absolutely, completely entwined. And she was very passionate about that. Do you think um, she, as an activist, got anything wrong? Um, politically, no, I don't. As an activist, no. I mean, she, re she refused, for example, to, to play in Israel because she was shown solidarity with the Palestinian people. Now, that could be controversial here or it could be controversial generally in society, but I happen to think she was absolutely right. And she probably gave great example to other artists to follow, uh, for, to follow in her footsteps. And she was an avid and a very vocal anti-racist. She really couldn't stomach racism. And I remember, see, there's lovely pictures of her online now with her child in her arms on a big anti-racist march in the late 1990s. Christy Moore is in the frame and Mary Coughlin and lots of stars who went on that protest. Yeah. And of um, course, when she was with the Grammys, she, the reason she had the public enemy symbol under her head is because she was protesting rap not being included. Mm -hmm. Major African-American art form. Yeah, we think of her, I think, in this country as taking on the big institutions, the Catholic Church, the Constitution, but she took on things like the American National Anthem. Or she, just, took she, on she took the on Grammys, she took the on industry. The, she took on the bull of the nomination and saying one record is better than another. She just realised that's, that's, that's not how you can rate art. What, what she also, I think, 
started a conversation about in this uh, country was mental health, mm. which she was so public and, and honest about. Mm. But was there a period of time, do you think, Donald, where we as a country didn't understand Sinead O'Connor and perhaps at times, and I use this word, I don't know if it is the right word, to ridicule Sinead O'Connor, did that happen for a period of time uh, in her life? Absolutely that happened. She, she would have spoken about that herself and there was definitely a long period of time where she was, she, you know, she was just considered a crazy person, and and um, I think even as, to be honest, even as as our understanding, you know, progressed, I think we we think we're very modern now. I think people still didn't really know how to deal with the way sometimes her illness presented. She lived like we all do in an era of social media. There was very public um, videos and and tweets and things like that 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 came out, and. It, it, I think it was sort of hard for people to... to it, it made voyeurs of people sometimes. Mm. And they, did, they didn't know how to... People wanted to help her. They wanted, they wanted to enable her to help herself, but it was just, just hard to know what to do sometimes. Mm. Did her. it make people uncomfortable, do you think? Because it was so in your face at times? I, I think it probably did. Um, uh, but I think she always lived her life by her most authentic self mm. as she was in that moment. So when she was having those moments, uh, she was living that life and she was reaching out and looking for help. And I think a lot of people, I think it, it made some people uncomfortable, but I think a lot of people really wanted her to be well and wanted her to be better. And there was always this sense that she was held in love by a huge number Absolutely. of people in this mm -hmm. country, that they loved her voice, they loved her bravery, they loved her resilience and her resistance to the powers that be. They loved that she kept true to all the things she believed in, in anti-racism. Even in March of this year, she said every refugee in this country, every single mm. one of them is welcome in this country. And she loved them all. Mm. And I think those of us who, who see the backlash that is coming now from the far right about who gets to be in this country appreciated what she had to say there. And, mm. um, for me, the, the great sadness is she doesn't get to live to be an older person now uh, in her old age, looking back and all, all that she has achieved. It is so sad. She will never actually see that. She used to say she loved getting older because she could see her granny's face forming in the mirror. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she said it was nothing to, nothing to ever fear because she, she loved She enjoyed it. She appreciated it. Yeah. Did, she, did she understand and uh, appreciate what she had achieved? And did she feel that there were other things, Donald, that she wanted to achieve, change that she wanted to see in this country? Um, I, I'm not sure that, that, that she, you know, was, was that focused towards, you know, on, on social causes. Things like, things like the refugees, I, I've been talking about in the present day, she certainly would have been very engaged with. Um, I think she would have been concerned about rights being rolled back, but I think she probably would have been more broadly just concerned about the things that we think have gone away but are, are still always there, like racism, like misogyny, um, and they just manifest in different ways. And um, you know, I, I think also she was very um, supportive, a, a great ally of the LGBT community, oh, I mean, absolutely. particularly with the rise of transphobia. I mean. Yeah. I saw on Twitter that she got in touch with Tenny, the trans yes. rights organization, 
That is true. Uh, and offered her support and anything she could and do. I mean, just, and she just, just wanted way, to do that. Just the way that. she looked and the way she was. I mean, she was playing with gender decades before we were having any kind of conversation about that, just in her presentation and the way she spoke about herself. Mm. Yeah, but one of the things that I was interested in was a, a quote that I read today in an interview she'd given to the Toronto Star where she was asked, Reed, if she was a feminist. And she said, no, she didn't consider herself engaged in the feminist movement at all. That surprised me. Um, well, I, I can see, it depends on when she said that, but there was a periods of time when the feminist movement was very sort of perceived as being exclusive and just only about women and not about the whole human race, where she was about the whole human race and presented her fight for women's rights in that way. Uh, in other words, if women are kept back, then we're all kept back. It serves nobody's interest, men or gay people or children or anybody else. So she, she may have been asked that in a period where feminism was seen as separatism. And if that was the case, then I would per perfectly agree and would have been there myself because feminism did go through a period of separatism, whereas it should be seen as something that's inclusive of the entire human race, you know, regardless of where they come from or what their gender uh, or their perceived gender is. I think it would be wrong to put her in that sort of a box. I think it would be insulting to her in, in some ways to say, yes, yeah, she is a feminist, partly because definitions of feminists vary an awful lot anyway. But to put her in that box would be wrong because she's such a free thinker and she's so free-spirited. She represented so much in terms of mental health and in terms of liberalism and in terms of feminism as well. But to actually say you're a feminist, I think that would be actually almost insulting to her because she had an identity, a unique identity of her own which I think should be respected. Do you think she was ultimately proud of Ireland, Donald, and how far a lot of people would think this country has come? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think Sinead kind of rolled her eyes. She'd lived in Ireland for a long time. She'd moved back since the mid-90s, so she was just probably sceptical about a lot of different things that don't run very well in this country, just like, every, like everyone else who lives here is. Um, but in terms of how far it, it came from what she would have experienced growing up under the church and, and, and all of that, I think, I think she, she, she would be happy at, at how far it's come, yeah. Uh, would she be, speaking of scepticism, would she be sceptical of some of the quarters that the tributes have come from today? Oh, she'd be nauseated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As we all are. She'd be nauseated. They just, they just line up, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, she... That would definitely be an eye-roll moment, would it? It absolutely would. I mean, I mean let's not... Yeah. Some not... of the tributes that I saw on, on social media today were from places that really Sinead did not... Uh, inhabit. She'd have been in the horrors. Uh, she it, would yeah. have been in the horrors yeah. about some of those. One good thing, things. though, about it, and there's nothing good about her demise, it's really, really sad, but it has opened up the discussion about who we are, where we are, and what we've come from, and how she was a marker for the change that we've come through. I think that's a really healthy thing, particularly given the rise of nasty elements of racism and mm. fascism in the country at the moment. Yeah. All mm. right, we're going to have to leave it there on that note. Yeah. But my thanks to uh, all of you for coming in. Donald Lynch, Mary McAuliffe and Breed Smith. Shane Ross will be joining us again a little later in the show. Up next, the climate emergency being described by the UN chief as not global warming anymore, global boiling. And are we about to see another indictment for Donald Trump? We're going to be live in Washington.
As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Well, for the last few weeks, our screens have been full of this. Fires burning out of control, thousands of people fleeing across the Mediterranean as temperatures peak at well over 40 degrees centigrade. Today, the head of the UN had a stark warning about what all of this now means. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable. And the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy. No more excuses. No more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Well, just before we came on air, we went to Italy, a country that has seen the Jekyll and Hyde of the current weather. Reporter Giles Gibson spoke to me and I began by asking him about what the last week has been like. Yeah, we've seen this extraordinary split screen between the north of Italy and the south. So in the north, we've seen these hailstorms and extreme rain and, and flooding. And then in the south, we've seen these wildfires sweeping, in particular, the island of Sicily. Uh, we've seen uh, these videos on social media of people trying to drive down roads with flames almost sort of hitting the, the sides of their car windows. Uh, there's been widespread disruption to water and electricity supplies as a result of these wildfires in Sicily. And there's also been a big impact on the island's tourism sector because the airports of Catania and Palermo, you know, very common airports for people flying in from around Europe and around the world for their holiday in Sicily, those have been severely impacted as well. But it's not just Sicily. We've also seen wildfires breaking out on the island of Sardinia, uh, the area of Calabria in the southwest of Italy, uh, the area of Salento in the, the southeast corner of Italy. And we're hearing from fire brigades and from local authorities here in Italy that there have been more than 3,000 what they call interventions across all these different areas by fire brigades battling these blazes. 
In terms of what you're seeing in the north of the country, those thunderstorms, those hailstorms that you talk about, how frequent have they been and how unusual would they be for this time of year? Well, the climate in the north is very different to the climate in the south. So, if, uh, for example, during the really extreme heat wave that we had here in Italy, uh, you know, that was nicknamed uh, Cerberus after the, the three-headed dog that guards the, the gates of hell in, in Dante's Inferno, we saw the most intense temperatures in that heat wave in the, in the south, in places like Sicily and Sardinia, and even sort of halfway down the country where I am in Rome. Now, the temperatures in the north of the country in cities like Milan did not quite get to those sorts of temperatures, but we still saw you know, very high temperatures uh, for this time of year even in, in areas of Milan. And then off the back of that heat wave, we have now seen just huge amounts of rain in a very short period of time. And also remember that actually here in Italy, we've had severe droughts, not just in 2022. We had a very dry winter as well, heading into 2023. And now we have this sort of combination of very extreme heat and then these sort of extreme uh, downfalls in, in places in the north. All right, Giles Gibson, thank you for bringing us that update. And we'll be discussing climate change a bit more after the break. Well, it may sound like something we have said a lot recently, but former US President Donald Trump may be about to be indicted again. This time, it's for his role in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Let's get the very latest business post. US correspondent Marion McKeown joins me for, for more. Marion, thank you for joining us this evening. I have to say, my first thought when I saw this news this evening was, there's so many indictments. What could this possibly be related to? So update us. Well, it's hard to keep track of them all. I will grant you that. Um, right, so this one is specifically to do with the January 6th uh, attempt to overturn the election. But I want to make it clear, it's not about the riot. It's not about his role in the actual insurrection that happened. It's about what happened before that, in the weeks before that, specifically attempts to put together uh, slates of false electors, electors who, who would go up and say Trump won in their state when they actually didn't, attempts to browbeat public officials into doing things they shouldn't be doing, uh, basically attempts to subvert the election outcome uh, leading up to January 6th and culminating in the riots. Now, um, I think that the, the Jack Smith is going to probably stay well away from the claims that Donald Trump incited the riots, that would be quite hard to prove. Uh, it looks, I think, today the grand jury met again. They meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays in Washington, D.C. The courtroom was packed with lawyers um, and with journalists expecting an indictment to be handed down today. Trump's lawyers met with Jack Smith, the special counsel. Uh, they didn't argue the law or the facts. They didn't say Trump was innocent, which was interesting, apparently. They said that instead it would be terrible for the country if he was indicted again. It would also be terrible for him, obviously. Uh, and uh, they were taking that approach. Now, it seems Trump is also saying, I just did what my lawyers told me. This is going to be his new defence. If he uses that defence, he's got to waive the right to client-lawyer confidentiality. Uh, his lawyers mainly were Rudy Giuliani, uh, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis and John Eastman in, in this sort of, you know, attempt to overthrow the election. Uh, and the, the legal claims they filed, uh, they're all in, in various states, in New York, Washington, uh, Texas and California, in various stages of being disbarred or disciplined at the moment. That might 
might be why he feels that's a good route to go down. But there's also other stuff that he could be indicted on. The indictments are likely to be to defraud the public, uh, to try and uh, tamper with elections, to tamper with witnesses is another one that may come up. But also Donald Trump raised about a quarter of a billion dollars between November 3rd, 2020, when he was defeated and January 6th and thereafter, all claiming that the money would be used to, for recounts to fight this wrong result, etc. None of the money was used for that. We don't know what it was used for, but we know it didn't go towards that. So that in itself could be a, a fraud charge. So we, we know normally the, t the time frame is about three or four days. So we'll probably know early next week what the charges are, but it's pretty likely there will be charges. And also in Georgia, barriers are being put up around the courthouse in Atlanta, suggesting again that there's more trouble coming down the pipe for him there. In terms of this latest indictment, there's always, I think, discussion, isn't there, in America about, you know, the merit, the strength of the evidence against him to support the particular charge. What are they saying this time? Well, I think that everybody feels that this is, there is a strong case here because we know we know that they tried to bring 60 or 70 scurrilous legal actions. Now, he was entitled to do that, but we know that there were plans to bring up false slates of electors from Arizona, from Pennsylvania, from other states to try and get them in and to replace uh, the, the, you know, in every state, if you win a state, let's say Joe Biden wins a state, the, the slate of electors uh, for Joe Biden will go to Washington. But what Trump tried to do in his, his, um, people around him was to send up a slate of electors from states that Biden had won and say, no, 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 Trump won this state. We're casting our votes for Trump. That is illegal. It's fraud. So that, you know, I think that there's a lot of proof. The January 6th committee, you may remember uh, last year, they spent so long laying out this case. I think Jack Smith borrowed heavily from their evidence and their witnesses, but he also subpoenaed another dozen people, including Mike Pence, people who refused to appear before the committee. And it seems that there is is a pretty ground for a pretty strong case against Donald Trump in this case. And it seems also likewise in Georgia. A lot of people so thought that the Georgia case. Line, yeah, it certainly does. All right. Thank you for bringing all of that insight and knowledge as always. I'm Mariam McKeown there in Washington for us this evening. All right. We're going to have to leave it there for now, but there's lots more after this break. We're going to be taking a look at the stories that have caught our eye this year and what we might see for the rest of the year with our panel. Stay with us. Well, it's been a hectic few months of news with 2023 throwing us stories from crippling inflation, shocking homeless figures and a crisis at our national broadcaster. Let's take a look through them. I'm joined by Deputy Political Editor of Independent.ie, Hugh O'Connell, Ocean FM journalist Claire Ronan, and I'm joined again by former Government Minister and author Shane Ross. You're all very welcome to the programme. I'm going to start with you, Hugh, because this is a really positive story. Yeah. Your highlight of the year has been, despite the results, the Women's World Cup. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the results have not been good, obviously, but I, I think just the fact that it's it, that they qualified, obviously that was last year, but that uh, the whole build-up, the whole uh, excitement around it, uh, the level of coverage, level of exposure that they've got, and I think the fact that they have, in both games, put in pretty solid performances um, bodes well for the future and bodes well for the future of the game in this country. And I think amidst a lot of kind of bad news, and particularly in the last 24 hours, 
um, that that is a shining light. And you know, people like Katie McCabe scoring that incredible goal that would in you know in any uh, you, you know in the men's game would be lauded as one of the goals of of the of the season. Um, I think that's one of the goals that will be probably one of the goals of the tournament. Uh, and she is a superstar now, um, and she is someone who I think young girls in this country who are playing football will aspire to, and young boys even as well. So I think it's a fantastic story, uh, notwithstanding the results, um, and I, I just think that it, it bodes well for the future of, of the women's game mm. in this country, which, uh, let's not forget where it was only a few years ago, you know, total lack of investment, all these horrible stories about having to change out of their tracksuits in, in the airports and hand them back to the FAI. Like, we're a world away from that now. And it shows, more importantly, that when you invest in the game, you get a return. Um, and I was just saying to you before we came yeah. on air, I heard a conversation earlier this week and they were talking about the last Women's World Cup and some of the goal differences, you know, 15-0, mm. 12-0. Mm. This time around, you're not seeing that. And they're putting that down to the fact that four years ago, many of these teams had no goalkeeping coach. Now they do a little bit of investment yeah. and the quality has really improved. But this is exactly it. Like, investment in the game will show a return. And, the you know, it's it's kind of a chicken and egg thing where you, the more you invest in the game, I think, the more that, that uh, people will want to watch it because the quality will be better. Um, and I, I just think that, that, you know, as I said, this World Cup appearance bodes well, I think, for the future. And I think it will... It'll motivate people to invest more in, in the women's game in the coming years. Here's hoping. Um, Claire Ronan, your story of the year is the Irish economy and the fact that we seem to be generating these phenomenal surpluses with this warning, it won't last, it won't last, and yet it keeps coming and it keeps coming. Is it, however, putting the government in kind of a difficult position because there's going to be the pressure to spend it? Yes, it probably is. Um, and this is the six billion surplus, um, which we actually do have. Now, isn't it... In, in one way, yes, of course, it's a very positive story and it's my positive story for the year. But when you balance it out with what we're hearing about every day and the, the difficulties people are having with the cost of living and uh, like we could start at the beginning and work right through all the different issues, we still do have this six billion surplus. And it has, first of all, for every journalist in the country, it has been marvellous to speculate on what we should do, whether we build another airport, whether we put a rail link out to Dublin Airport, whatever we do with it, we have it and it will only improve the country. So I think that is my positive story. And as you say, we keep hearing, oh, it might never happen again, but it has. So hopefully it'll keep on giving. Given where the country, I suppose, was, it's mm. something that we shouldn't take for granted in this country. It's a surplus that other economies would absolutely scream for. And they would really, really... Uh, there's a lot of countries looking at Ireland's economy now with uh, jealousy. OK, you know? moving on. Uh, Shane Ross, uh, it was a scandal that dominated the news agenda here. I think we covered it for 18 nights in a row or something, uh, what happened at RTE. Will we ever, do you think, get a full picture of why and how certain decisions were made at the broadcaster. I hope so, because I'm writing a book about it. And, uh... <laughs> and it wouldn't be like you to plug it. <laughs> You'll get to the bottom of the book, right? so, Exactly. So, so I hope the book gives you the full picture of what, what, was, what happened. And I, I expect it will, but it'll, it'll be, take a lot of digging, because this is an extraordinary scandal. And uh, it, it is about time, and this is why it's, it's, it's a very good thing it's happened, that the truth about RT was out, outed. And what I'm discovering and what I think is, is coming through is that this was a very, very secret organisation. It's a kind of secret semi-state which preached transparency, which is an extraordinary contradiction. Will we get to the bottom of it? Yes, but it's going to take, you know, there are two, two Eructus committees sitting on it underneath Smith and Brian Stanley, who are doing a great job, and they get, they, 
They're producing a lot of facts. They're, they're going to have a lot more witnesses come in front of them, and they're going to get a lot, of, a lot more evidence. There are also two, two, um, uh, two inquiries going on, four inquiries going on, uh, but two won't report Yeah, but I suppose for they, will, they will identify, I suppose, a lot of the issues, but anybody yes. who knows organisations, a business model, changing culture in an organisation is incredibly difficult. So yeah. what's going to bring that about? Well, the, the change in the culture, I think, will mean a change in the board, it'll mean a change in the, in the management, a change at the top, and it'll take a long time because what I'm discovering looking at this is that you've got... This has been going on for years and years and years. It's been secreted for years and years and years from the top, and it's passed the baton of secrecy down from generation to generation. And so to break that is going to take probably another generation to do. That culture is so deeply embedded in there, and particularly at the top and in the board. And I think that what's happening now is, of course, a digging operation. Lots of digging operations are going on, and we will get uh, to the tr mostly to the truth of what happened. And there will be massive reform, and the government will have to have a vision. Will there, Hugh? Will there be massive reform? Yeah, well, Can I mean, the government push that through? There's no doubt it's the story of the year. And, and I think um, I, I think the government will get an opportunity to push through massive, massive reforms because of the, the level of... of, um, of funding that RT is going to request. The level of funding that RT is, is going to request. I mean, we were talking about this off-air as well, is that this possibility is being discussed openly in government now or kind of quietly in government. But this... FAI-style bailout for RT, where they're going to face a funding crisis. We can see that already. Their licence fee revenue is down in, in the six or so weeks that, since this scandal broke. Um, it's down significantly and will probably continue to go down. Um, and RT is going to need money uh, in the budget, and in return for that money, the government is going to set certain conditions around how that is spent. I mean, the, the whole... Like, Shane is right. This whole controversy around, you know, secret payments to, to Ryan Tuberty has unearthed a whole... Uh, Pandora's box of issues within RTE, mm. even down to the fact that they were not operating like a normal semi-commercial uh, commercial semi-state for the last 10 years. The majority of their funding uh, was coming from, from the licence fee. Most semi-states, the rule is that their majority of their funding should be coming from the commercial sector. So this was a dysfunctional organisation, and that's all coming to pass now, and it is going to require the kind of root and branch change that I think the government will be able to, to get through and we'll be able to require a Vorti because of their need for money. Yeah, the, the speculation continuing, Claire Ronan, about whether or not we're going to hear Ryan Tuberty back on air in RTE. Hmm. I know you've said absolutely unequivocally you think he should, but hmm. do you think he will? Well, that's the multi-million dollar question. And the story isn't dying. It just keeps on going on. So... I think a lot of people would like to see Ryan Tuberty come back on air. I think personally, people, he's popular. Um, I think Orti as a whole has lost the public's trust. And once you've done that, it's very hard to regain it, particularly when you're asking them to pay for a licence fee. Um, I would have said to you, absolutely no way would we ever hear Ryan Tuberty again two weeks ago. But sitting here right now, I think there's a much bigger yeah. chance. Mm -hmm. Time is a great healer for yeah. this, I think. And, and I think as well, there's a way back for him. First is pay back the €150,000, mm. which he has indicated he would be willing to do. Uh, and then the second is take a, a substantial pay cut. Um, and I think that's a, that's a route back yeah, for him, Irish people are generally very forgiving. Yes, um, is, there is, I should just say, there is huge staff resistance to it. Well, that is that's yeah. true, yeah. And that's going to create enormous difficulties for them. Yeah. And, okay. and he also... There'll be no-go areas for him because of what he's done in this particular crisis. Um, let's move on to some of the real low points of the year. For you, Shane, the ongoing war in the Ukraine, the, the impasse that seems to be there uh, at the yeah. moment, and our response to it, do you think it has been largely positive? Or do the protests that we have seen concern you? 
I think the, um, it's just such a depressing situation to see this is going on for another year and on and on, and there's no end in sight. This is a, humani it's a humanitarian crisis which could have been averted. It's evil, people are being slaughtered, it could be stopped. I'm not condemning the government on in this or even saying that they necessarily could have been, done a lot more. But I think that there are questions that should be asked about of this government. The minister, Simon Coveney, yesterday expressed concern about parts, uh, parts being made in Ireland, being found in Russian and Ukrainian battlefield, which is a matter of great concern. There also are question marks about whether sanctions are being properly imposed, particularly by one or two Irish companies. And that's something which we could, we could tighten up on pretty quickly. There are people dying. Um, Hugh, I just want to move on to your, um, I suppose, low points of the year, the stories that really struck you. Uh, Sinead O'Connor's death, which we've spoken yeah. about in the programme in the last two days. She was, she was a, <clears throat> a trailblazer uh, and people have been really moved by it. But mm. there was another uh, a story that I think you had mentioned, which was the warning today from the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, about global warming. It's yeah. not global warming, he said anymore. It's global boiling. The mm. era of global boiling has arrived. That statement should stop people in their tracks. But does it? And, and, and what is it going to take, I think, to bring about the kind of change in our lifestyles that's going to be required? I, I think it's going to take a catastrophic weather event in this country uh, where people die, quite frankly, um, and where homes and livelihoods and businesses are destroyed. That kind of level of catastrophic event is the only thing I think that's going to make people sit up and take this really seriously. Because at the moment, it still feels very much over there, a problem for some holidaymakers out in roads that they're lucky to get out of, um, and all these kinds of, kinds of things, which feel very distant, I think, for people in Ireland. And we feel almost quite insulated from it. And we joke about the fact that, well, they're having major heat waves in Europe and we've had rain for the last five weeks. Mm. Um, that's what it's going to take, I think, for people to, to sit up and take notice. Mm. But even quite apart from that, um, what we do in this country will matter not a great deal in the context of what's going on globally. And unless the big industrial countries, the US, China, India, uh, unless they get really more, a lot more serious about climate change than they are, uh, and climate action than they are now, we're not going to, we're not going to move the dial on this. That's the reality of it. And like, yet all, all the points that in that direction. Everybody has to play their part. Well, of everybody course, yeah, but no I mean, I, it just doesn't seem to be doing that. I mean, you, I mean, you look as well at the United States, there's an election next year, and Republicans, if they get in, if it's Donald Trump, if it's someone else, they're all going to reverse everything that Biden has tried to do, tried to do in the last three years to take action on this. Uh, very quickly, speaking of elections, we've got local elections next year, European elections, we've got a, a budget. What is that going to do to politics over the next six months? Well, we might get um, a generous budget, I'd imagine. I would think so. I yeah. think so, <laughs> and I think that we'll be hearing all sorts of wonderfully positive things from September till Christmas about the way the country is being run and the government. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there for now, but my thanks to all of Thank my you. guests for coming into it. That's it for this season from The Tonight Show. We are going to be taking a, well, earned, I think, break, uh, but we will be back in a few weeks. We're going to leave you tonight with some of the images and tributes to the wonderful singer Sinead O'Connor. But from all of the hardworking team here on The Tonight Show, good night. Take care. My own love said to me Slide to
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.